0: What's going on everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. fan. And before we get into today's conversation with Drew Cohen, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more it helps new people find the show and it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. I put out brand new interviews every single Monday and brand new takeaways episode every single Thursday where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week. And last but not least, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it to your Instagram story. Tag myself at the Jacob Kelly, tag Drew at Drew underscore Cohen, and I'll feature you on the account and send you a message as well. And now without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Drew Cohen. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan, And today we're joined by Drew Cohen. And Drew is the owner of Cohen Media, an agency that optimizes and enhances personal brands on digital through creative storytelling. And he and his agency have done this for some high-profile clients, including current NHLer Vincent Trocheck and Charlie Rocket Jabbly. I'm very excited to have Drew here on the podcast today. Drew, welcome to the show. Absolutely, man. Awesome intro. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here, man. Where I want to start, I want to go all the way back and I want to talk about hockey actually cuz hockey is just a big part of your narrative and I think it's important to set that foundation early on. So, when when did you start first start playing hockey? Like when did you get fall in love with the game?
1: Awesome. No, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because hockey is so important to me. It's, uh, it might even be annoying to some people, but hockey, actually, it's funny. Uh, hockey usually starts very early with, um, with a lot of you know, my teammates, guys I grew up playing with. They started skating when they're two, three, four. Um, but actually, I started late. I started when I was about 11. Um, I had a cousin who had married a hockey guy from Winnipeg. They are both chiropractors. They had a practice out in L.A., um, actually attached to the LA Kings practice facility, and um, so we'd go out there and visit them, and and um, we'd go to their facility and the chiropractic practice, and and they would take us skating. And I just, I you know, I'd never skated before in my life, to be honest. I I grew up playing soccer. I grew up playing every sport. Soccer was the one I kind of attached to, but um, but we'd go out there and visit them. And of course, him being from Winnipeg and, and big into hockey, you know, very close to playing professional. Um, and then he took his uh, kind of career into medical but uh, he would always take us out. We would go skating a couple of times. Um, I loved it. I, I got my first pair of skates when I was out there and, and um, they they lived down, in, I believe it was Rancho Cucumongo or Rancho Cucamonga. but they had a uh, a tennis court in their backyard out there and he set it up to be a small little um, sports court and he would have two nuts out there. And so all our time spent out there, we'd go out to California maybe two or three, four weeks at a time and it was always just skating at the rink and then playing hockey when we went home. And, and so I just, kind of got thrown into it and immersed into it and i picked it up and i loved it and um every time we'd come back home i'd I'd continue ice skating here back at uh in northern virginia and then i i played one season of ice hockey and i kind of got thrown into it Uh, a lot of people kind of do like you know these clinics and camps and and kind of learn to play hockey before you you actually play a season but uh but no, I I jumped into it, I loved it. It was definitely a, a learning curve for me playing you know more traditional sports and then jumping onto ice hockey where you're trying to skate, stay on your feet and also play this, you know, very, very technical game. But um but it was awesome, I loved it, and then I just never looked back to another sport. I just wanted to play hockey. Uh, everything I did was, was hockey related. I if I wasn't on the ice, I was, you know, shooting pucks at home. And if I wasn't doing that, I was probably playing one of those EA sports, NHL games. And so everything I did was hockey related and um, I just, I got thrown into it at you know, 10 or 11 and, and really never looked back. Now, you know, I coach, I play, I, I work with these NHL athletes. I, I have e-commerce clients in the hockey space. And so you know, my girlfriend will tell you how annoying it is, but, but everything I do is very hockey related. And, and uh, that's just how I like to live
0: my life, I guess. And what position did you play growing up?
1: So, you know, I, when I first started playing, um, I played a lot of offense, um, and then as I got a little more competitive, I, I was a little bit of a, a taller and bigger kid for my age, so I immediately got put on defense where, you know, I was probably more of a natural defenseman um, growing up playing competitive, and, and that's where I played till about 14. Uh, yeah, about 14. Um, I ended up trying out for a, a AAA team here in, in Northern uh, it's Northern Virginia, Maryland area, a little caps team, and uh, I got to play a little bit of forward and defense, and I, you know, I don't know if that's because I was good at both or they didn't know where to put me, but I got a, I got a little bit of uh, both playing there. And then um, going up through juniors and college, I, I mainly played defense.
0: And did you know that there's still a video on YouTube from you when you played for the Little Caps from over a decade <laughs> ago?
1: Uh, it's a little embarrassing, but uh, no, I, I do know of it just because there's about, it's probably what, like five minutes long, four and a half minutes of probably just a couple of hits. And then I think there's like one or two goals, you know, and that's, that's pretty much sums up my whole hockey career.
0: And so I'm curious. So you, you said you grew up in Virginia. So closest NHL team is Washington, right? Yep. And so you, but you've kind of got really introduced to the game in California. So I'm curious how you ended up wearing number 66. Were you a Mario Lemieux fan?
1: Yeah. uh, Strangely enough, I was, um, you know, when I got, when I got introduced to hockey, um, it was, you know, Ovechkin came about a year later and, um, I I was playing video games a lot when I first got into it and, and I would just for some reason uh, the way that Lemieux played I think him you know I kind of looked at him as like a bigger right handed guy uh, he scores a lot of goals very exciting but I always thought he had this like uh, whatever you want to call it but like kind of like a swagger he kind of has like this French Canadian really cool very very smooth type of swagger and I just always thought that was cool and and uh interesting enough from the pretty much the first day i played to the last day i played i was able to wear the number 66
0: Mm -hmm, which is awesome and to the last day game you played you ended up playing even beyond kind of high school you ended up playing college hockey when did that become an opportunity for you
1: yeah yeah so um you know college hockey for me was was more of a um, education choice um I, i was kind of at this point in my you know there's a there's a there's a kind of period of time between the high school and the college point where a lot of hockey players make a decision If you know, this is a family decision too. If they, if they want to continue on and, and keep playing in a competitive amateur type of space and, and, you know, develop for a couple more years to be very, very competitive for maybe an NCAA uh, type of role. And, um, you know, I, I was at this point where I was okay at hockey, but I I wasn't a standout. I, I don't know if I had a, a real future and career in hockey. Uh, I loved it and I loved playing it, but, um, the moment I got into a good school, uh, me and my family kind of came to a conclusion that, you know, I I would prioritize my education and and my schooling versus playing out a couple more years. Um, you know, it was a choice that at the time, of course, you want to play, you want to continue playing and and be the most competitive player you can. But, um, you know, I've had really good influences in my life. My, my parents are both really good influences who, you know, I I trust their vision. I trust their, uh, their understanding of the world a lot better than I did. So I decided to take the education route and play, uh, Club hockey at Christopher Newport, but um, but to be honest, I, I don't regret anything because uh, the people that I met there, um, between my girlfriend at, at Christopher Newport University, um, a lot of my good friends who I you know stay in contact these days were all uh, college hockey teammates and and some of the best people I've ever met. So I, it was a good uh, choice for me. Looking back on it,
0: so and you mentioned a little bit; it was a little bit difficult to do. So, like, how hard was it? At probably seventeen, eighteen years old, to make that decision to. Ultimately, by by effectively by going to play club hockey, instead of pursuing college, you were kind of effectively choosing to not go pro, which is obviously every kid's dream when they start playing hockey. It's like, how hard was that decision, really?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. It's, uh, you know, uh, saying going pro is a a long shot. uh, But, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, I I was lucky enough to play high level hockey. I played a couple years, triple A, a couple years, juniors, um, you know, playing the sport and being able to travel with the guys was incredible the the commitment that it takes I mean uh, it sounds like you're from a little bit of a hockey background as well and, and you know traveling on the weekends you really give up a lot of your social life um, not that that was hugely important to me but it was it was something that you know like playing on a junior team from Virginia it's a little bit different than playing up north um, you know where teams are maybe an hour or two hours away playing in Virginia you you have to travel to new york connecticut boston every weekend and uh you know it, it's uh it's definitely a it puts a toll on um other things in your life kind of put, get put on the back burner but um to be honest making the decision for me wasn't too hard um i got to go to a great school that that uh i really wanted to get into i had a couple of people that i knew went there previous to me and and uh you know they always told me i was able to go there and visit a couple of times um to be honest the, the club hockey it's something that it might not seem competitive from the outside, but um, it was still good hockey, right? Like you, you still have to try, you still have to you still have to get up and practice, and and um, so it was a good balance for me because I like the ability to be able to have a social life in college without, um, you know, of course the dedication was still there, but you know, between the travel, the the restrictions, um, you know, a lot of athletes fall back in classes, and and so I thought it was actually a good balance for me to be able to still enjoy the game, um, the place where we played out of, practice out of. I was also employee. At school, um, I, I ran a pro shop there. I, I did a little bit of uh, lessons. Um, I ran my own camps and clinic company out there, so it, it allowed me a lot more on the business side of things to uh, to start working. Um, probably at an earlier age than most kids, might more guys or, or girls in college at the time.
0: And that, that those camps and clinics. That was ISO athlete, correct?
1: It was ISO athlete. is was my uh, my first real shot at entrepreneurship. Um, I worked for a a camp called Pro Ambitions and. They're a huge camp run by a, a former NHL guy, Jeff Sarawick. Um, and I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of my summers working with them, kind of traveling around Virginia and Maryland uh, during the summers. And uh, I just love the experience. I think um, it's something cool for the kids to be able to go out. And, and you know, there's a lot of dedication in hockey where even when the season's over, they're, they're already looking for the next, you know, slot of ice or the next camping clinic. And um, one thing that I always found interesting was, you know, you bring in some of these summer guys or these coaches and, and uh, camp counselors, and you pay them a very low cost, but they're the ones, they're, you know, they're the heart of the whole week, right? They're, they're running the on ice. They're taking care of the kids afterwards. They're doing all this stuff. And, and I was just like, man, it's it's such a good concept because you can bring in help for kind of cheap and they're the ones actually running the whole program. And so I was just like, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of years. I think i got it down pat where I can kind of run it myself. And, and that's kind of where that kind of, uh, Got introduced back home in, in the Virginia Beach area where I was going to school.
0: I wonder some of the lessons you learned as a as a young entrepreneur during that time.
1: So it, it, a lot of lessons. Um, a lot of lessons about value. Um, I worked with a couple of people who, you know, some of those camp counselors that were curious why they weren't getting paid more, right? And there's there's a lot of things behind that, a lot of lessons learned to to explain to people. And that's where I learned how to one, to kind of manage employees and, and two, um, manage expectations of the consumers, right? So they they feel like they're signing up for something. You have to make sure that each day that their kids are, are leaving, learning something, or you know they're essentially getting what they signed up for. But um, what really came down to with these counselors, you know, maybe they expected to get paid more, but um, you know, we had to learn how to how to really value the marketing side of this, the the ownership, taking the risk on a lot of these things as an entrepreneur. Um, You know, one of the things I was telling one of the guys, and they were they saw how much I was making as the owner of the camp. And clinic, right. And they saw all these people come in, they saw all the customers and they're wondering why they got so much. And I, it was a simple question. I was just like, you know, over the last three or prior three months, you know, what were you doing to drive more customers and, and consumers to this camp and clinic? And, you know, they said they didn't do anything. I was like, so, so basically what you're telling me is if we're not doing anything, there, there'd be nobody here to sign up for these camps and clinics or, or to register them up for them. And, and, you know, that was kind of just a, I guess just a life lesson for you know there's a lot more that goes into some of this stuff and and on the registration and marketing side, that's really where I got my my first start in digital advertising was was marketing those camps and clinics. Um, it was a you know at the time, I didn't know much about Facebook ads, but it was it was interesting to me to realize that from my computer or from my phone, I could get people in front of my camping clinic, you know, simple poster type PDF and um and starting to see people actually email me and call me I, I just thought it was like a crazy concept to put it out there and and be able to geotarget that specific location with people who have interest in hockey who are parents and and uh that's where i got my start it was very very uh you know i would say it's very elementary the way i was using digital advertising but um but that's something that stuck with me and ended up you know helping me land my first job in marketing was uh, marketing myself in those camps and clinics so in terms of, you know, lessons learned, it was really just trial and error. And um, I guess having faith in something that a lot of other people weren't using at the time was, you know, Facebook advertising.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you mentioned your first job there at direct development, I believe. And I do want to get to that before then you mentioned that with being an entrepreneur, there's some risk involved and obviously starting this, this business in college, I'm sure you were investing money into it and you're also paying for school at the same time. So I'm sure it's not like you had a ton of money to throw at this. So what is your relationship like when it comes to risk as an entrepreneur? How do you handle it? Do you try to be risk averse? Or are you someone that runs headfirst into the risk, just hoping, expecting it all to work out? Like what's your relationship with
1: risk? Uh, It's a great question. Um, You know, a lot of these things were fueled by a lot of registration. Um, You know, one of the biggest things I had to pay for was uh, that specifically with those camps and clinics, you know, you're paying for one sports insurance, right? In case anything happens at that, you know, you want to make sure that you're covered. But um, the the real big kind of cost for me was ice time, which is not something that a lot of other sports have to deal with when it comes to running those camps and clinics. I think they can be a little bit more um, I guess a little bit more affordable. Um, it's a little bit easier to sell when you can just, I guess, you know, sign up for a registration at a local field and, and run a soccer camp. It might not cost you anything and then everything that's coming in is is you know net profit for you. For for an ice hockey camp ahead of time, first of all, it's a struggle to work with rinks to lock down a certain amount of time of ice to be able to run two or three sessions a day during the you know five-day camp. So making sure that you know you square that away, but the big risk is Hey, I'm signing up for, you know, anywhere from, you know, I was able, I worked at the rink at the time. So they, they gave me a, a little bit of a cost break, but you could be renting anywhere from, you know, 2500 to $6,000 worth of ice. Um, that's three months ahead of time. Right. So putting that in, locking it in to make sure the rink sets it aside for you so you can host this camp. There's a huge risk for me to to put down that kind of money to make sure that I could pay it off. Right. So, but it, to be honest, for me, it was, a, it was a good thing because it, it made me, um, it made me a little bit more hungry to fill out the camp because, you know, if I only brought in 10 kids for the camp, I'm just going to pay off the ice and I was doing a whole camp for free. And um, so it, it forced me to say, you know, here are my price breakdowns for the for the ice. Um, this is how much it's going to be to get t-shirts and, and jerseys for everybody at the camp. And then after that, it's up to me to market it and, and advertise to make sure that I'm drawing in the, a good amount of people. Then not only people that are going to sign up for the camp, but you know, people that might help me out in marketing and be word of mouth marketing for me to, to draw in you know, two or three more people with them. And so that was kind of my driving factor to fill out the camp was, you know, there's a huge cost for me to even host this thing. Now it's really up to me to, to push it out, fill it out, and then actually have a, a you know, good experience there so that people would come back in the future.
0: And you ended up eventually taking that business online, right? And you made like developmental resources online for people?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that that was um that's one of my biggest regrets actually is is not watering that side of the business more. Um I I got really focused in on the in-person camps and clinics um but, you know, I was a little bit before my time with the concept, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll be very transparent with you. I never I never ran with the developmental side. So, it wasn't something that um you know, right now, I'd probably have 250,000 followers, a couple of deals that, you know, running a lot of hockey things and uh, hockey content. That's that's something that we really wanted to push. And we were ahead of our time, at the, you know, by doing so, by coming up with it. And but what we never did was we never pushed the the publish button and we never put our content out there. And then, you know, a year goes by and now there's three or four other guys in the space that are absolutely crushing it. But, um, but yeah, we, we did a lot of in-person events and camps and clinics and private lessons. Um, but we never watered that side of the business to make it grow into something that it could have been. And, uh, definitely one of my biggest regrets, but, uh, well, that's right. Cause now I get to help other people kind of uh, take their concepts and, and push them online.
0: I'm curious with that in mind and hearing you say that's one of your biggest regrets, is that something you dwell on often? or you kind of just accept the fact that it happened? It's in the past and you're moved forward now.
1: I, I've definitely accepted it. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, and maybe you've kind of gotten this from, from, you know, looking me up and trying to find some information, but I'm not really a big spotlight guy. Um, I don't, I don't like to be in front of the camera. I, I'd rather prefer to support and produce other people's content or other people's you know marketing needs. Um, that's just the way that I am, I guess, naturally uh, I tend to be a little bit more shy, a little bit more, like I said, behind the scenes. Right. So we had this con and maybe that was the reason why we never watered it and, and went all in with it was because, um, you know, we, we weren't ready to record ourselves to the amount of, of content the amount of uh you know face-to-face type of content that would be needed to develop that online persona and so you know that's something that never was prioritized but but no it's it's one of those things where you look back and you're just like man we had this idea and we look at other people in the space really crushing right now and it's like it would have been cool to to run with it but at the same time uh you know the pathway that i was put on i can't really complain about that and there's no regrets there so it's it's one of those things you look back and say it was a good idea, but you know that's that's on me for not running with it and and not uh, I guess trusting the vision enough.
0: Mm-hmm. To, I was just curious as to kind of your relationship with that decision now, but I'm curious. You mentioned earlier how this camp and the marketing you did with it ultimately is what led to you getting your first job, and that was with Direct Development Inc., right? It was. It was. What is Direct Development?
1: So Direct Development is a is a digital marketing, more specifically inbound marketing. Um, agency that specializes in both higher ed and nonprofit marketing. Um, I was fortunate enough. There's a guy, uh, Shane Keel. He's a really great guy. He, he was a teammate of mine at CNU. Um, we were roommates at, at one point. He graduated a year before me and he was able to lend himself a position at, at that agency um, out in Fairfax, Virginia. And um, it just happened that, you know, a year later I was, I came looking for jobs and I, you know, I, to be honest, I didn't really I didn't really know much about what he did. And one day I ended up just reaching out to him and say, you know, Hey Shane, I'm going to come out to, uh, to Fairfax. And, you know, maybe you can just show me around show me what you do and, and tell me about your clientele and tell me like, you know, what exact, what kind of marketing are you providing for them? Just because I was always interested in social media and, and marketing and, and, but everything I did was very grassroots. It was very, um, scrappy type of marketing, just things that I was doing for myself to, I guess, test for my own uh, ideas, my own concepts, my own companies. And, um, he, he brought me in one day and was just like, this is what we do. This is, you know, we work with higher ed and, and him specifically, he works more on the higher ed side and, and um, he was telling me about the schools that he works with, what they're doing for the schools. And um, you know, I, he's just like, we, we could probably use a little bit more help on the social media side. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where I, I was able at that point I, I would have done anything right for the, for a, a marketing agency. I would have done social media, project management, um, anything that I could successfully do myself and just jump in and start right away. And, and that's what ended up happening is they they brought me in for a, an interview. I was able to speak on my Facebook ad experience through ISO athlete. I was able to speak on building a social media presence. Um, you know, it wasn't anything crazy, but you know, I was, I was doing something right. And, and that's what they cared about was, you know, that I knew some things from the start and then I was actually doing it and actually being a practitioner of it. And I think that's what, you know, I got brought on for a, a social media specialist um, role where I would help push out a lot of organic content for higher ed institutions, um sub non nonprofit as well. You know, we had a we had a content team that developed a lot of written content and video and, and graphic design. And they would hand that off to me and I would figure out the best way to optimize it and get it out and to to portray and represent the school at the nonprofit.
0: So a bit of a two-pronged question for you for, mm. based on baseline answers. The first one being, why social media marketing? What about it made you want to do it? Like you said, were you do anything, just kind of get in, in the door with an agency at that point point? and jumping ahead a little bit here, I try to keep things pretty narrative and chronological order, but I want to jump ahead a little bit just while we're on this topic sure. with you saying how you wanted to do whatever you could just kind of get in the door with an agency. How cool is it now reflecting on it to have your own agency?
1: Sure, no, absolutely great questions. Um, you know, in the first part, why social media and you know why that was kind of what I wanted to lean towards into working with it at the agency. I, for some reason, you know, social media always interests me. Growing up, I thought going to YouTube and this was like I guess pretty early on with a lot of media platforms, but like for me, going to YouTube and and figuring out how to learn something from a video was, uh, for me, it was it was just mind blowing. To whatever it was, it could have been how to do a specific football drill or how to put together this piece of furniture. I just, I was always fascinated by going to this free platform and, and just the amount of knowledge that it, it could provide somebody at a, you know, at a pretty early time too. You know. And then just the, the sheer numbers, um, you know, back then that probably 10 years ago or, or even more, just going to YouTube and seeing the, the amount of people that were viewing this, you know, viewing the content, viewing the video at 50 million, 250 million, it just always blew my mind that this person was just taking a video in their front yard. And, uh, in most cases, it couldn't even been something that they were planning for. It could just, they just had their phone out for some reason they were filming something and then something crazy happened. It just, it, it always shocked me that that amount of, uh, of views could happen on a, a media platform. And so I always thought, you know, if I want to do something, I want to be in media where I can create something cool and get in front of a lot of people, um, for a very low cost at the time, you know, Facebook ads out. When I was running those camps and clinics, trust me, I, you know, as a college student, I was running Facebook ad campaigns for you know, like $15 at a time. So I wasn't spending a lot of money at all, but, um, but I was getting hundreds of people to view it and I would spend $15 in a two-week span and get seven emails, you know, just people locally that have never heard of my camp or clinic and they wanted to know more. They wanted to know, you know what was being taught, what kind of things were being offered. And um, at the time, I, I, think I, used, I think I used custom ink to get a poster made. And this is how scrappy it was. Like I had a poster made for the rink so that people would come in, i will get the foot traffic to see the poster. But I took that poster and just repurposed it as a Facebook ad. And so like, that's how scrappy a lot of stuff I was doing was, but it was working and it was drawing results and, and to spend $15 and have, you know, 2,500 come back from that Facebook ad that for me, that was just like legendary to to think that I could spend that little amount of money and get that ROI. Um, So I was always just intrigued by social media, the power of social media, um, being a connector of people. I think that's what kind of drew me in the most. And um, I guess at the time, you know, my friend Shane, who was working at the agency, told me how much money uh, some of these schools were spending on digital advertising and, and social media. And that's really what drew me in is like, if I could if I could do some damage with $15, you know, I'd really be interested in what I can do with a larger budget. And so that's kind of what drew me in on, on the social media and the digital advertising side of uh, uh, direct development.
0: Interesting. And then full circle now having your own agency, like how cool is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because I remember a day at direct development. Uh, I might have been like six or eight months into the job. Um, we had somebody come in as a, a professional, professional development type uh, figure come in and speak to the speak to the whole agency, and he had us write some stuff down and put up on a board. And you know, at the time, and trust me, I, I don't think about this much. So I'm glad that you kind of brought it up and, and asked me because you know I get to reflect on it a little bit more than I probably would. But one of the things I wrote down was to run my own agency, and um, at the time I. I thought that was something that I really wanted to do, but working at direct development taught me that it's a lot more complex. It's a lot more stressful as an agency owner than, uh, than a lot of people think. And they, they see it as, you know, you get to always be creative. You get to work with clients you want to work with, but um, there's a lot more realities, I guess, behind the actual job and and running an agency and worrying about payroll and and other employees and um, keeping clients. Right. So, you know, of course, everybody celebrates when we land clients, but then, there's times whether it's because of our work or because of, you know, their situation, we lose clients too. And, and so there's a lot of ups and downs in the agency life. Um, at the time I really wanted to own my own agency just because I thought I wanted to run my with my own ideas and, and not work for somebody else. But then I, I spent two years there and I, I loved it. And I, it felt great knowing that I can just fully focus on the ads and not have to worry about every other silo at the agency and, and keeping it running, keeping clients happy. Um, a lot of things. And, um, you know one day i just i started actually i started working with a, a local guy I grew up with uh, his name was brandon brown he, and he um he's a NASCAR driver we went to high school together and one day I just looked him up for some reason I was just like i wonder how he's doing and I saw that you know he he did pretty well he was he was um he's one of those stories of an under underfunded driver who always was competitive he's consistently ranking top ten top twenty but um but never had you know good long-term sponsorship and um so i started kind of digging a little bit deeper i looked at his media and you know like 1500 followers or so on twitter same thing i was just like and then i would, I would scroll over and look at some of his the people that he was competing against and he had uh he had somebody same age not doing nearly as well as him on the racetrack but you know 20 30 40 50,000 followers just because they were being active and so i, I looked at him and I reached out and i said Hey man, just, you know, if you need any help on social media, let me, let me try to figure out how I can help you. And, and, um, you know, I think it, it really just comes down to just documenting a lot of stuff that you're doing and putting out there and, and, and then engaging with the fan base. I just thought that that was, you know, that's something you always hear, right? Engaging with the fan base. But when you actually be strategic with it and you find opportunities to do so, he ended up growing 10,000 followers in the course of, I think it was three months and, um, half of it was being active and half of it was engaging with the fan base. And um, so, you know, that was my kind of my first case study into. First of all, if I'm being very transparent with you, I loved my time at Direct Development. Um, they gave me a lot of resources, gave me a lot of opportunities to grow. But the higher ed space where I was working just it wasn't exciting to me in in terms of long term careers. And so I, that's where I kind of looked towards picking up some small projects, kind of work on the side. And and um, if there's athletes I could help, that's something that I always wanted to do. And so that's that's where I kind of got my switch from hey i've been working at this agency i love it but i had this small success with low-hanging fruit with this this guy I went to high school with and you know he's awesome he's doing really well but you know if i can work with some guys and maybe major league sports baseball basketball nhl you know that's where i thought i could take some of these concepts i was learning from both direct development and some of my trial and error with with uh, the nascar driver and start applying it to those guys and see where we can get them in terms of landing deals and sponsorships and um and then as the end of my case study for Brandon Brown, the NASCAR driver, after three months, we landed our first twenty thousand sponsor, you know, twenty thousand dollar sponsorship with a team, which is uh, one of the biggest they've ever landed. So and it, it really directed directly resulted from our our active uh our active kind of process on media.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to hearing like you having the success with your own agency and you're doing what you want to be doing, working with athletes. Would you trade in the time you spent at direct development to just go straight into doing your own thing right away? Because I feel like for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, they just want to get out of the nine to five and do their own thing right away. But it sounds like you had some valuable lessons and having that two-year buffer between kind of finishing college and starting your own business was super valuable for you. Is that kind of a, like, do you have a similar sentiment?
1: Oh man, it was incredibly valuable. And, and there's a lot of reasons why, you know, first, the I think the biggest reason is you learn to work um, with a team, right? So at the agency, there's, we had designs, we had, we had our design, we had our tech, we had our copy creative, we had our, um, you know, strategists. And then we had social media and digital ads with a very small team, it, mainly just me and another guy. But, um, what I learned from that is, is like, it really takes everybody to come together to want, not only pitch ideas and come up with concepts, but, um, you know, there's a, there's an idea that goes to, there's an idea that goes to the copy creative, right? And they, they write out this long list of, of articles, um, premium content ideas, and then from there, when they flush it out, it then goes to design. Design makes it look really good. They design these really awesome ebooks that people would want to download, you know, kind of get them to to stop scrolling and, and figure out if, if this is a piece of content that's going to help me get into a graduate school or help me find the right program. And then from there, it goes over to me, where it's now I have this beautifully written. And it looks great, and, and now I have this awesome ebook that I can go to Facebook and, and generate, start generating leads for. And um, but it was really, it was awesome to kind of work as a team. It, it definitely had its ups and downs, right? Like you know, there's people that you like to work with, and people you don't like to work with. But at the end of the day, I was I was learning how to work as a team, um, being a part of something bigger than you know. It, was, it wasn't just me running ads and, and generating leads, right? It was. It, it really started with creative. Really started with some of the design work that that helped me create better ads. And so, you know, working as a team was awesome. But um, to go even further back into it, I was a novice, right? Like I I was running Facebook ads, but I was not a Facebook ad specialist or a Facebook ad expert. Um, being able to work with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in Facebook ads with some of the budgets that we had with our, our higher ed institution clients, it, it was it was just a, an awesome trial and error learning experience for me. Um, one of the biggest areas of growth that I had was we were not running any kind of Google advertising um, search or display at the time when I first got there. Um, it was mainly Facebook advertising. We used a little bit of LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn ads were a little bit early, but we saw the value there. So we, we you know, diverted some of the budget, but um, one of our biggest, I would say drawbacks was we were not qualified and specialized in Google advertising, which is obviously huge with the amount of search, um, especially with the content and, and the copy that we were creating to be able to to kind of line that up with um with our design but also with the ads right so we could target people through facebook and we can use some of the lists that were given to us through the institutions to target um prospects and and people that kind of had their eyes on the schools but one thing that we kind of dropped the ball on was um figuring out how to square away google advertising and that was one part of the process where I don't know if I would have ever learned Google ads as well as I did if I didn't work at DD, because they, they really kind of threw me they kind of, I don't want to say threw me out to the wolves, but you know, they, they, they had a client who basically said Google ads were a big part of the process. And they had somebody, you know, who they had another agency taking care of it, but they were looking to get away from them and they wanted to be able to have direct development uh, absorb it. I hope I'm not throwing anybody under the bus at direct development, but, um, but we weren't specialized in it. We didn't have anybody there who could, take $50,000 and apply it, you know, effectively on Google ads. And um, so I, I was thrown to the wolves. I, I in the span of a couple of months, I had to figure out how to read data on Google ads. I had to figure out how to uh, learn the platform, how to take content and creative and, and apply it to Google ads to make sure that we were hitting all the marks of the prospects that the schools were, were telling us were their were top potentials in terms of just a persona or, or just people that, you know, in terms of user behavior on, on Google and and user behavior on some of the, the uh, just their online behavior that allows us to go in there and and target. We were very effective on Facebook, but it was definitely a learning curve for me on Google. But now I look back and and that was the opportunity where I was kind of thrown into the fire where I had to learn it or else we would, we would fail for this client. And they would, uh, they would, you know, they were one of the biggest clients at the time and they would probably pull all the other budgets that they had and, and maybe look for somebody else. But, um, I quickly learned the platform and and we saw, you know, very quick wins and success on Google. And so it was something that, uh, I always that is something that I look back on and and really appreciate, um, that DD, they gave me the platform. Um, I wouldn't say that people there were helping me learn the platform, but they gave me the opportunity to, I guess, get thrown into something that's new, learn it, um, try to figure out inspiration from other people using the platform and, and start applying it to our clients. And, And that's where, um, I guess I kind of surprised myself at that point, Um, learning a whole new platform in just a couple of months and and being successful on it. But, um, but that is definitely something that, you know, if I didn't have DD, I I wouldn't have those clients to be able to work with and have the, the sheer amount of budget to work with, to be able to test and learn as quickly as I did.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a quote. I don't remember who said it, but someone said sometimes the best way to learn is you have to jump off a cliff and build a plane on the way down. That kind of sounds like how how, how you were learning Google ads there.
1: That's exactly what it was. And I'll be honest, it was, a, it was a definitely a stressful time in my life because, you know, with Facebook, you can tell a client, exa- you know, not exactly, but you can, you can pretty much tell them expectations to kind of believe in if they choose to work with us, right? Like, these are the amount of leads that we can drive you. This is the amount of traffic we can bring to your website, you know, through retargeting. These are the amount of, you know, people that we can channel down your funnel. But for Google, it was so tough for me because I had no prior experience to tell anybody. And so, when you know you're sitting down in a meeting with with a big school and and you're trying to explain, you know, what the expectation looks like, it, it was tough for us. But um, but it was definitely a lot of long nights, um, doing a lot of research, testing a lot, and and keeping an eye on everything that we were doing to to make sure that we were being effective and and that um, you know, we were optimizing as we go, which you know. It's, it was a little bit tougher on Google to optimize than it was on Facebook. Facebook provides a lot of, you know, people probably don't know this, but to to work in Facebook is very easy because I think a, a lot of the AI and the computer learning does it for you and they want you to see success there to keep spending money. Um, Google at the time for me was, was a lot tougher to learn. And I felt like I had a lot of good ideas and, and it just wasn't sticking at first, but, um, that's where, you know, you look, you look for inspiration, you, you stay up late watching other people, other kind of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, marketing experts kind of explain their process and, and ways to optimize. And then you just got to apply it to that specific client and what we're looking for in the content that we're pushing out. But uh, yeah, no, that your quote is, is spot on. And and luckily I was able to, to put it together before I hit the floor.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. And one, uh, just one part of your history that I'm curious about. So you mentioned how your first kind of client was Brandon Brown. And yep. today, Brandon Brown is sponsored by Vero, and you actually spent some time with Vero as their quality assurance and user experience researcher, right?
1: Yes, yes, and um, you know part of the process of of getting together was, you know, I, I had a little bit of of uh, I had good contacts at Vero to to be able to get Brandon's kind of pitch deck in front of some people, and and it was really helpful. Um, I don't know how much you know about Vero, but um, it's it's a it's a fairly under the radar social media platform they're not new um, they've been around for for more than five years but but they're under the radar for a couple of reasons um, you know first of all, the way that they choose to market their platform is a little bit different than everybody else but um they're also very much based on um, a no ads no algorithm process that that makes it kind of tough for people to one to grow on there to find a good following but um but also it's a little bit more real than what social media is right now and for some reason it sounds great in your head but um when you land on vero and you actually use it it's just not as flashy and i think for that reason it, a lot of people are, are t- kind of turned off by it but um but yeah had to get away from it but to as a quality assurance tester what essentially what i was doing is as we're getting more users and more people um signing up what i would do is i would actually work with uh work with a few people to help me test the actual experience on the app so timing them to figure out how long it took to sign up for the app to download it from the app store and actually sign up for it um, just to see if there's any quirks in the process so it was actually it was it was a tough job because I had to line up communication with people and actually get them to screenshot or just kind of record their screen as they go through the process if I wasn't there with, well, with them in person and um, I found that that was actually a really tough job. It was, it's similar to cold calling. I had, a, I had a hit a, a lot of people that I knew personally to even get some of the, the data back for us. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a really good experience and it, it actually led me to working more directly with the marketing team at Barrow, um, helping with the partnership with Brandon Brown and, and kind of being a, a point of contact for them. So it ended up leading to something that's a little bit better than <laughs> my first job there. But, uh, but no, it's awesome. They're a great platform and, and I, I'm really excited to see them grow in the future.
0: As, and you mentioned how it's a bit of a, a lesser known platform, but Vero had a moment, I think it was around 2018, where it just exploded for a very short period of time. And then right after that, got into a little bit of controversy. And probably yeah. been shortly after you would have just started. And I'm like, I don't want to get into the controversy or anything like that. I'm just curious, as someone who worked for Vero at the time, how, what are some of your takeaways watching the company navigate that rise and steep fall in a very short period of time?
1: Absolutely. And I just got to say you're very well researched because these are, you definitely had to pull some of this stuff out, but, uh, but no, I'll tell you a couple good learning points from Vero. Um, first of all, they're ahead of the curve when it comes to social media, everything. Um, they were the first people to introduce time being used on the platform, which Instagram ended up implementing, I think maybe like four or five months later. Um, they, they, they're very innovative. The team there is incredible. Um, they're, they're they're almost too, they're too ahead of their time, if that makes sense. Um, I think you'll hear about Vero in 10 years. Right now, people are starting to, to get a little bit more aware of, of data, harvesting uses of data, how it can be used against somebody, the negative side effects of, of putting out your data and not being aware of it. Um, they're just too much ahead of their time where people, I would say that the average human doesn't care about their data as much as they should. Or, or who has their data? Who has tabs on their data? I think where people are starting to understand because of, of TikTok and and some other social media platforms. I mean, this is not a new concept, but um, you know, once the right person tweets out the 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 rights and the uh, the privacy policy, uh, some people start to to just share it a little bit more faster, and and so that's what we saw with Vero. But at the same time, like I said, Vero is just ahead of their time. Um, one thing I did learn about working with Vero, especially on the marketing and media side, is. The power of community so that that rise that you're talking about was literally the span of I want to say like maybe two to four months it was a it was actually a cosplay so you know people dressing up as as anime cartoons or, or whatever whatever it might be that's where the growth came from it was um, a leader in that community a thought leader in that community that sh- shared it and said that this is the kind of the place for us as a cosplay community and overnight it really just took off it all the global, you know, in Japan, in the United States, in, in the UK, it just started blowing up everywhere, and people felt like it was theirs. Um, but the the kind of takeaway from that is, from that moment moment forward, Vero always focused on the community. Um, they didn't want to market to a tech savvy person. They didn't want to market to uh, a college fraternity or sorority. They didn't they didn't have like these personas. What they did is they try to latch leaders in a specific community so it could be a nascar driver right now their their main target is how do we get in front of more nascar uh more of the nascar community whether it's additional drivers whether it's partnering with uh, with actual speedways and raceways but that's how they they kind of ran their marketing campaigns was we want to strengthen communities and give people a place where they can truly be themselves not have to worry about um, the ads or the algorithms interrupting their social media experience. But we want to give people in the cosplay community, for example, we want them to be able to get together, share what they want to share and have nobody interrupt their social media experience. They want to make it as real life, as lifelike as possible on the internet.
0: And so what's the business model like for Vera? Like if they're not selling ads or data or anything, like how are they making money?
1: So there's a couple of different ways. Um, they They were one of the first social media platforms to be able to offer um purchases through the app so that was their first i think there was i think i couldn't tell you the exact model but i think it was aston martin was actually bought through the Vero app and that was you know that was pretty big news years ago and um so they have that kind of model that they're running with but at the end of the day their their biggest kind of push and their biggest uh, hurdle is figuring out how to create a subscription-based model for social media so they would pay, and they've they've mentioned this a ton of times in in various publications, but they kind of equate it to paying the amount of a cup of coffee is the price point that you'll pay for a year using Vera, And that's what feeds their no ads, no algorithm process, and that's their way of monetization.
0: That's interesting. I think social media as a whole, I think we're going to start to see the industry slowly move towards more niche social platforms at a subscription base i know the hustle i don't know if you're familiar with them they're a popular email yep. newsletter um they just announced uh, sam Parr, their founder put out on twitter just in a one-off tweet that they're creating a linkedin um that's they're creating a link a linkedin type platform yep. at a subscription for their users so i think we're gonna start to see more like niche pockets these niche social platforms crop up at a subscription for you get exactly what you want in your feed
1: absolutely that's awesome i think especially for the linkedin platform first of all it 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 definitely is a gate, right? So people aren't flooding the platform and, and um I think LinkedIn is a special one right now where I actually told somebody the other day I was like I go on LinkedIn and I, I kind of I know like I've worked with some high profile guys and I know I understand um how people are using LinkedIn right now and growing on LinkedIn and for me it's 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 for me it's like bots talking to bots or personal assistants talking to personal assistants or, you know, digital assistants and, and nobody's actually using the platform. It's just people constantly looking for more engagement and more followings and more connections. And it's, you know, they think that they're growing something big, but in reality, it's, it's, it's just more fake. And that's why, you know, I kind of always lean towards Vero and um, I don't share it a lot actually, just because people don't understand. I don't think uh, you have to have a very high level understanding of, of technology and media to see where Vero is going. And um, people are too stuck up on, I need 20,000 more connections on LinkedIn. And I need 50,000 more views on TikTok And yeah, I won't even get started with TikTok because I just feel like there's the there's just the the metrics for me are just never add up and it's one of those things where it's just like if it makes somebody feel good and it helps them put out content I guess that's a good thing but for me it's just like yeah you can have your two million views but you know if it's if it's not driving the bottom line for you then you know are you are you spending your time effectively that's that's kind of how I view it but um but no Vero is is uh I'd love to connect with you on there and kind of show you around a little bit Um, I think one of the benefits there is is if you, you know, if you have a small group, you know, small, I would say like a small groups or maybe just, just your family and friends, like you see everything, right? So if, if I was following you or we were connected on Vero, anything that you post would be on my feed and I would never miss anything that you posted. And so that part of the no, no algorithm kind of process for them is huge to actually have that connection where it's not, a, it's not AI telling me exactly what they think I need to see or want to see to be on the platform more. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that kind of opened me up to, to Vero was I straight up told one of the guys there in the tech team, I was just like, something's not right about Vero because I don't stay on it very long. And to be honest, nothing really draws me to it. Thinking that I was like offering them advice and and value. And they were just like, yeah, exactly. That's like, that's what we want. We don't, we don't want to take over people's lives and we don't want to harvest your data by keeping you on the app for hours and hours. We want you to come in, talk to somebody head out, see see where somebody's at and see what they're doing and head out and just have it be as normal and realistic as possible. And that's when I learned about, you know, these guys are ahead of the time because they, they're they not trying to keep people on the platform longer. They, they're just trying to offer something that's actually real. And that's where I, I kind of like, it was like, a, it was like, a, I came alive and I was just like, wow, like this, these guys are, are definitely 10 to 20 years ahead of everybody else on, on social media right now, because they're real and everything that that they're offering is of value and it's not just to keep you on there longer or to keep you clicking. And, and you know what I mean? Like, it's just something that's, I just looked at it as a, um, a part, real part of the future in social media versus what's going on now.
0: Does working for a social platform make you view the other ones differently? Like maybe one, of course, just as a user, but two, just some of their business moves or some of the way they make the platform work. Like does working for a social platform, make you kind of look at it through a different lens than the average person?
1: A hundred percent. I'll tell you why. Um, I, also I don't want to throw people under the bus here but this is a perfect example for me to uh so Brandon Brown signed with with the race team signed with Vero, right and and Brandon Brown has been a NASCAR driver for for multiple years um he's always a top competitor in the league and and um he's never been verified by by uh any other social media platform i think because of our involvement with Vero. and so when you have that level of um whatever you want to call it they they might be intimidated they're choosing not to recognize him or or whatever it might be but you know here's a a professional athlete where everybody else in his craft is verified and they're given opportunities um we look to 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 Brandon as kind of a case study for us as you know first of all these other media platforms might have a deeper eye on us than than we originally planned because you know they they truly are limiting him on their platform but um, it was just it didn't seem fair to us. It just it they there's an upper hand being played that, you know, it, it can draw back your political campaign. It can draw back your your marketing ability. You know, there's there's a ton of things that they kind of have control of, which is it's totally fair because they're a business, right? And they it's their platform. And they can do whatever they want with it. But um, I guess that example is is one of the examples I like to tell people is our you know Brandon Brown's involvement with Vero might have kind of held them back on, on traditional media, which it might not seem like a big deal to anybody else, but you know, for us, it's just like, man, it's just not fair. Right. Like what, why, you know, why would you hold him back when there could be a 16 year old kid that just came into the league and he's verified, you know, two days later. And Brandon Brown has, has been working at his craft and their family team that's been at it for years. And, and that, that check mark not, might not mean a lot to a lot of people, but for somebody trying to earn business and trying to earn business, especially through his media, uh, it's a big deal for us. Right. So that's something that we always found was, was kind of interesting. And I guess you kind of learn the darker side of media and, and the power there um, by working with some of these companies. But um, but in terms of other lessons and, and looking to other places, um, for me, it's just a, I, I like to use everything, right? It's not, for me, it wasn't, let's use Vero and then not use Instagram anymore. I, I like to be everywhere. Um, I think it's valuable to, to test as many different, you know, we like to call it A-B testing, right? So we like to have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like we want as many options as possible to learn um, as quickly as we can and so for me you know it, it didn't hold me back from other platforms it just it opened up my eyes to i guess some of the darker sides of other platforms and and you know i think it comes to light every once in a while you see flashes and you see people grilling mark zuckerberg and, and it just makes you realize that this is just the stuff that we know i like, mean there's there's a ton kind of behind their doors that, that most people don't know but um but yeah that's i guess that's what it just opened up the dark side of some of these other platforms
0: and and with brand back to Brandon, with him, so. With Cohen Media, then, are you like you obviously facilitated the sponsorship between him and Vero? But what are some of the other stuff you do? Like, do you produce the content for him? Are you managing his social channels for him? Like, what does that look like for for your clients in terms of like, what you do with Cohen Media?
1: Sure, sure. So, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like you're in marketing too. And <laughs> to be honest, I feel like I spend half my job um, educating the client, right? Like, helping them understand why we're doing things and, and what we're doing. And, um, you know, once we, for, I found that it, it not only betters the connection because they feel like they're learning more about it but they actually give you more leeway into maybe stuff that they weren't open to a year ago, um, just because one, they understand it. So they're a little more comfortable with it. But when we actually push it forward and they see it working, that's when there's like a, a little connect with them where it's, which is fair enough. Like if you don't understand something and you're not comfortable doing something because you haven't, you don't have the reps, you don't have the practice in it. Um, it can, it can be a little bit, you know, daunting for somebody. So they, they might not agree to some stuff, but the minute they kind of give you that trust and and you can kind of do a little bit more. Um, that's when we start to see real strides in people's media, and and uh, you know I like to look at media as just an extension to what they're doing in life, right? So these guys are, are the the one percent of all athletics, you know, whatever sport they're playing basketball, NASCAR, NHL, like these guys are, are the top one percent, and people want to know what they're doing. So you know, a lot of it is is um, just documenting what they're doing and, and putting it out there, which is tough for these athletes. It might be a time thing, it might be a listen i spoke to an nhl guy it was probably like six months ago i was just like hey do you mind throwing this up there do a little swipe up um you know one of the sponsors is looking for something from you and they're just like i don't know how to do a swipe up and that's when i that's when i realized that it's not just being an expert in the space it's helping these people understand one how to use it properly but two sometimes it's it's also an extra hand um you know a lot of the stuff that we do is you know, we, we might post for an athlete, but it's not because they're not capable of doing it. It's some of these guys travel and then they're on the go. And next thing you know, if, if we lean on them too much to, if we're just helping them produce the content, we're not helping them publish it, it might not get out. Like, that's just a reality. So, you know, everybody's a little bit different. Um, I have guys who love being part of the process. that love being in media. And then I have guys who they're constantly traveling. These, you know, they have, a, they have a family life that they, they just don't want their phone to be around. And, and so for them, it's an extra hand. Um, so it really is, it's, it's very different with everybody, but the one thing I will say about working with them is it's always a learning process. And that's probably the most valuable thing that we can do for some of these athletes is just help them understand the media side of things. Um, and if they need the extra help, if they need help, you know, publishing and, and getting out there, engaging with fans, um, that's another big one where, you know, we really rely on them to make sure that we have that authentic voice, um. Same things that they would say is is huge for us. We don't like to take over that kind of stuff just because it one it doesn't feel right for us. But um, but you know then things don't get really done as as planned, right? So there are times where we'll have to help them out on a specific project or a specific campaign or helping them out with nurturing a sponsor that we have. Um, you know, there's there's things that we can do to help them out. But but really, it's just pushing them to understand a little bit more, helping educate them why it's important, and then once they see the value and when they see it working that's when we started to get like real buy-in and real collaboration with the guys and the girls.
0: And so Brandon was your first client. That's where you kind of said you got your, you got your case study there with you we were able to grow an athlete social through using, through using effective content and engaging with the fan base. So after that you had your first, your first client, when did you finally take the jump to doing Cohen media as kind of like your full-time thing?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Cause it, it was not instant. Um, I had started working with Brandon um, I'm in the Washington DC area and, and I was lucky enough to, and I, you know, I, me and Brandon are good friends. So I think he's okay with me kind of, I guess, giving you some real insights and some, uh, some of my you know sh- strategies here, but I actually use Brandon Brown's account to reach out to other Washington athletes to, to open up collaborations between them, which trust me, it was, it was actually for Brandon. I didn't know at the time it would actually help me out. But um I lined up these collaborations with a couple of arena football guys out of Washington. Um I did a lot of research on which Washington athletes had affinity to either NASCAR or to just fast cars and people who, who enjoyed um going to car shows, things like that. And I found two Washington Nats players, Adam Eaton and, and Howie Kendrick, through um just just my own research. I, I went to their profiles, I went to I read articles, I did I watched podcast interviews. I found the two guys who were ex- had extreme affinity to NASCAR and to fast cars. And I ended up collaborating with them through Brandon's account. They invited Brandon out to a, uh, to a home game at, at Nats Park. And, you know, I was able to weasel myself in there and, and and bring myself in and invite myself kind of, but that was part of the process, but I was able to take that strategy across multiple Washington athletes. And um, where it was successful was, to, uh, it, was, it was an arena football player. His name was Doug. He, incredible athlete, signed by the Seattle Seahawks um, out of college. He he didn't have the best career in the NFL, but he had an incredible career um, in arena and, and Canadian football. And uh, he was he was an unbelievable guy who had this passion for motivational speaking, and and he developed his own nonprofit here in, in, uh, in Southern Maryland. And so same thing I did with the Washington National Athletes. I, re- I reached out via Brandon Brown's account got a collaboration with them set up. I invited myself, I introduced myself and I kind of shot my shot while I was there, actually at the arena football game. I said, hey, I saw that you have a nonprofit and and that you're looking to market it. Um, I just noticed that, you know, there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of activity. And he's just like, he's like, yeah, I have have so much going on that I just can't develop the content. I I can't get things set up. I can't find any sponsors. Um, And so that's when I I shot my shot with him through Brandon Brown. um, And I started working with him. And then just by taking care of those guys, they would introduce me to new people just because people were looking for, for this type of media management and, and marketing help and support. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have a lot of organic referrals, kind of build, build my business I um, didn't have to sell myself a ton throughout the process, which is, is good for me just because it, for me, it's a lot of added stress. I, I'd rather just kind of focus on driving the needle and providing you know awesome results for the guys I'm working with. And, and that's what I'm passionate about. Not so much selling my marketing services to other people, but um, it, it was needed sometimes, but, um, but that's where I kind of got my stays. And, and so I worked with Brandon and I worked with a couple of arena football guys. And then that's when I, you know, this was probably four or five months down the road. I was just like, you know, I'm I'm applying myself after work after five o'clock each day and, and getting some of this stuff done and helping these athletes. And, and they're starting to refer me to more people. You know, I, I think it's time that I kind of make the jump here and, and, um, and go full fledged and, and just be able to have money, you know, basically seven days a week to work on this stuff. Like that's what I wanted to do. And, and so I was able to, to walk out of my you know, position at direct development and um, try to help them find somebody to replace me and, and stay there. And, and, but I just let them know, I was like, Hey, this is something I want to, I want to pursue. And, and um, that's, that's when I helped them find somebody else. And that's when I made the jump over to, to Cohen Media, which at the time, trust me, I didn't expect it to be an agency. I thought it was really just a way for people to hire me individually to work on their specific campaigns, their media. Um, it could have been anything, anything digital, honestly. It could have been a podcast. It could have been their um, their YouTube show, whatever it might be. I just wanted to help people and market them in creative ways. And uh, that's where it, it ultimately led me to Charlie Rocket, which is why I always look back and think that, I guess, leaving DD was probably the biggest thing that ever happened to me because I wouldn't have been able to work with Charlie Rocket if I didn't leave DD at that time. Which was a couple months down the road.
0: And so, talk to me about Charlie then. Like, how did you get connected with him?
1: So, this is also something I've never told anybody. So, this is, a, this is definitely exclusive for your show. Charlie is the only person that, that knows this. I, so this is also a connection back to Vero because Charlie Rocket was actually a Vero. And, you know, there was an endorsement deal between Vero and Charlie, a sponsorship, a kind of partnership deal where when he, his first tour, it was a dream tour where he he bought this bus or this rv and he would travel all around the country providing all these charitable acts and events and he you know he raised funds to be able to help people he i think there was this time in atlanta he he had uh he had a deal with nike at the time where he had 300 shoes to just give away to people in atlanta he was basically just doing all this crazy stuff and i I was just like, who's this guy on Vero that, you know, kind of looks like a surfer, but at the same time he, he's doing all these crazy things. I was like, I have no idea who he is. And I started just, you know, I did my research. I looked him up. I saw, I was like, first of all, this guy managed to change Travis Porter. He had an unbelievable career in music, but I still had no idea like why he was significant now. And that's when I found his podcast, the Charlie rocket show. Um, it was really big in 2019, I think 2018 through 2019. And, um, just to give you a little insight on like how, how highly I thought of this guy is I heard his first podcast. I started at the beginning because I just knew there's something special about him. I started at the beginning, which is unheard of for me to to go back in time and do that. But um, I started episode one and I was just taken away. Like this guy was the most incredible person I've ever heard of between his feats, the people that he knew, the things that he did, the things that he overcame. I just thought he was incredible. I ended up listening to about four or five episodes a day. for the next month and a half and crushed his whole podcast i binged it like crazy and that's when i knew i had to work with him like in some facet i had to work with him um and and i what i ended up doing is he had this concept called winning streaks and basically it's his way of of manifesting good things in his life based off of him putting in his head that he's going to be on this winning streak so, you know, he'll go get a cup of coffee. It's only $2. That's a winning streak for him. He he drives through and it's a green light. That's a winning streak for him. And because he has this in his mind and his brain, that's what's going to happen to him because that's what he's focused on, right? It's, it's, uh, it's def. there's definitely a science to it, but in his head, he was manifesting his winning streaks. And um, I just love that concept altogether. And I told myself, I need to figure out a concept to get in front of him to be able to pitch the idea of us working together. And I didn't even know what that looked like at the time. So what I ended up doing was I said, you know what? I'm just, he probably has a million DMs in his, his, you know, his inbox. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to message him. I'm on a winning streak for as many days as it takes for him to respond to me. And that's ended up what I I said, Charlie, I'm on a winning streak. I hope to talk to you soon. And I did that day one, day two, Charlie, I'm on a winning streak again. Hope to talk to you soon or something like that. I don't know what the exact words were, but I told him I was on a winning streak for a series of days and (laughs) it was only day three till he reached back out to me like i was i was mentally prepared because i actually i set an alarm each morning so that i could send him a message at the same time each morning so it would be like a, a little bit of a trigger and then he would maybe give me the chance so that basically just any opportunities for me to say something to him and uh it, it only took three days for him to respond and, and he responded and i i was able to ask him about this project he was working on and then all of a sudden he's just like well what do you do like what's your specialty what's your superpower? And I just told him my background, you know, from me working at direct development, me working with some of these athletes. And, um, and then he said, all right, well, give me a call. I want to run something by you. And then literally the, the week after that, he pitched me this idea of his new podcast. And, and we started working together that day. So it was, uh, I was prepared to message him 365 days in a row if I had to, but it only took three. So this is a story I never told anybody, though.
0: That's awesome! I love the the commitment setting an alarm to making sure you send it at the same time every day.
1: Yeah, I was, I was ready. That's awesome. I, was,
0: That's I, awesome. I love but,
1: that. Uh, you know, he he's an incredible guy, and, and um, like I said, he's just you know everybody kind of has a voice they listen to, right? It it could change from one year to the next. Um, you know, a lot of people tune into Gary Vee, a lot of people tune into to Tony Robbins. Um, and I was doing all that. I had all my marketing guys. I had everybody I was listening to. All my inspiration when it came to just educating myself and continuing on you know learning more about the space but there was something about charlie rocket that kind of set me aside it was it was the fact that he had built concepts on culture versus concepts on what everybody else is doing and for me that was just the most important marketing lesson i could learn of all the time and and um i always i tell my girlfriend and everybody i speak to all the time about how I wanted to go back to school to get a a master's, you know, some kind of master's degree in marketing or advertising or, or media. But um, working a, a full year with Charlie, that was definitely my master's in marketing. And, and uh, to be honest, I don't know if I could could have gotten that education from anywhere else.
0: Can you explain a little bit more when you say Charlie focuses on building concepts around culture as opposed to just doing what everyone else is doing?
1: Absolutely, he he is the he's the, I would say. Thought leader, or whatever you want to call it, the expert. He's the master of of shifting culture, and he has so many concepts that he's come up with. But at the end of the day, you know, he likes to come up with ideas where it's he's not going into a space of saturation. He's going into a space where he's he's creating a whole another a whole other dimension where people would end up following him later on once they see it. But but he's ahead of the curve when it comes to everything. And um, the best way to explain it is a concept he uses when it comes to to uh, two objects. First, the iPhone, right? The iPhone was a a small device that ended up turning into a bigger device. And that's when people started buying the new one because they wanted the bigger version. After that, the year after, they went back to creating a smaller iPhone to make it as small as possible. And then everybody wanted the small version. So people left the big version to go back to the smaller version. And they ended up offering both. But there was this period of time where Apple had this thing down pat where they would create an opposite version of what they were offering and that's what shifted people to buy the next version because it was different from what they already had and so charlie takes that concept and he applies it to everything that he does in in marketing um one of his other kind of you know examples is everybody wanted tight pants and they started buying tight pants and then it went to loose pants and being as baggy as possible and then next year it was in fashion to go back to tight right so there's these shifts of culture that he's you know he would study he would he would study what's going on in the world to realize people want this kind of change and they want to follow something that's different and you know I think the trump election was was a great example of that too right it's It's shifting this this whole traditional way of thinking of of people had this for so long and they wanted something new, and that's how Charlie was able to create these concepts of you know everybody's everybody's releasing these albums but nobody's releasing these mixtapes and and people want something that's a little bit faster and quicker and they, they want it right away and and so he would just go in the opposite direction of what everybody else is doing so if all the musicians were doing albums and they were releasing only one or two a year charlie goes in the opposite direction and releases it every other day and so that's that's kind of his way of of shifting the narrative and then starting to realize that not everybody wants to to do the same thing that gary v is doing not everybody wants to do the the same thing that Tony Robbins is doing but but people want something that's a little more creative and and to be honest something that's that's theirs right so another good example is um, he talks about um, little brother rap and so something that a concept that he uses is some of the rappers and you know probably the 2018 to 2020 you know people have no idea what they're saying is this even music you know all these things but but all of these kids are are you know if they follow them like crazy if they get on Fortnite, they they will pay two thousand dollars just a chance for them to play with them in Fortnite Or all these crazy things like there's so there's this there's this um cultural attraction to something that's different and so you know our parents like a certain type of music and we like a certain type of music and you know charlie found this very early on that it it doesn't have to be the same type like if people don't like well people always like classic rock but Classic rock and today's rap is so widely different. And um, people that, that grew up in the 70s don't understand the rap of today. But people, you know, that 10, 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, it's something that's wildly different than what was, was happening before. And this is something that they latched on to. And, and I don't even know if they know the words to the, some of these songs, but they, they follow it like crazy and, and they play it all the time, right? So there's something about something being the opposite. Something about being, you know, wildly different than what was before, that um, that Charlie was able to study and, and replicate in a lot of his marketing concepts and campaigns. And and to be honest, I think that's the the greatest thing that that Charlie was able to share with me is, if you want to build something great, one, it has to be bigger than yourself, but two, go in the opposite direction, and that's where you're able to shift culture. And when you shift culture, that's when you're able to, to kind of find the success and the results that you're looking for.
0: That's interesting because I recently learned about. Uh... A mental model called inversion and sometimes it's to find the answer to your problem you have to look at it from the complete opposite perspective which is kind of along the lines of what charlie's doing and i've also heard people use it as like i shouldn't do that like i think the example was um charlie munger was saying that um basically him and warren buffett instead of trying to be geniuses they just try not to be idiots and that's what's worked out for them so far um so that's super interesting but i'm curious too so of course there's charlie's teachings and like one of the ones that always stands out to me is instead of trying to boil the ocean he just takes little cups, and boils those. I love that. Um, but what are some things you learn about him? Maybe not necessarily from the things he says, but more so the things he does. Like what are some things you observed working with him over the course of that year?
1: Absolutely. First of all, you know, he, he, um, one of the most interesting things that, so there's, there's times where I actually met, you know, I would go and I would spend some time with Charlie in, in, in California. And, and, um, one of the things that was most fascinating about him is he, uh, he used to always carry around this book and it was his, you know, wherever you want to call it, his manifestation journal, his book of dreams. Uh, that's kind of what we call a quantum journal. But, um, it, this thing was bigger than life. It was, you know, to give you an example, it was probably four feet tall. Um, when you opened it up, it was probably three or four feet wide and it was this huge book and he would carry it around everywhere, but he would always write things down. So, um, he had this concept of, his manifestation concept was it's already happened. Time just hasn't caught up yet. But the way that you initiate that concept is by writing it down. So you would open up this book and whatever we're working on that day, it could be, Drew, how are we going to figure out how to get a thousand more listeners today? Or how are we going to figure out how to start working with Drake? Or you know, we, would, we would have these goals and these, these ideas that we would plan, but it would always start with him writing in his book of these things happening. So, like, for example, one of his entries could have been, you know, just worked with Drake. We we launched our podcast. We got 50,000 new people into our podcast community. Um, on top of that, we were able to, you know, it, you know what I mean? Like, he, he wrote this stuff down. He truly manifested it. But that was, like, one of the most, I guess, interesting things about Charlie is he always wanted to write things down. And he did things old-fashioned. Old um, he didn't like to use notes. He didn't like to use... Google Drive. He doesn't like to use anything. Uh like he understands technology better than most people, but he doesn't use technology as like other people, which I always thought was fascinating. He liked to write things down and he liked to talk to people in person. He you know, he he's very interesting in that way. He's very old fashioned. But um that's the one thing I I really kinda took away from him is um this this idea of the winning streaks always stuck with me because it was just it was a concept that, you know, he would not only help himself but he would help other people understand and and these people's lives would change um you know it could have been a construction worker who could never get out construction and do something that he wanted to do or it could be somebody who you know is terminally ill and and they felt like they lost their life and and they didn't know what they're going to do and charlie would would show them what he does personally and these people would follow in suit and he would change their lives just through their their daily uh their daily rituals and, and just the way that they looked at life. Um, he gave people a lot of hope. He, he is, he's truly just one of those chosen people in the world that, you know, they truly cares about other people more than himself. And, and, um, he can spend a ton of time talking about his own personal accomplishments, but he'd rather learn about you to figure out how he can help you and whatever, you know, you need help with, whether it's marketing your business, he's, a, he's a, you know, he's, a, he's, he's unbelievable at marketing. But he, you know, people kind of sleep on him. Um, he's one of, the, in my, in my opinion, one of the best motivational speakers in the world. But you know, there's, there's for some other reason, he, he's not fully booked out. But the people that he does work with, he always leaves. And um, you know, I was managing his his text community at the time, and he would go to a motivational, or he would go to a speaking event where he was. He, it was either a motivational event or, or maybe a, um, um what's it called? Just some kind of like way to inspire hope into a specific event or you know, he was he was brought on to to talk about his marketing concepts. But every time he would leave, we would get the most amazing messages through the text platform where he could actually change somebody's life in just the 30 minute span that they were there. Which I think a lot of people say that, but when you actually see the messages and you see people like point their hearts out into like a, a thousand word text talking about how um, Charlie opening up about his life and his, his, uh, his way of overcoming things. I mean, that's where we saw the real power of Charlie and, and um, he was truly a celebrity and he never really acted like one, you you know, I went to go meet him for the first time. And it was just like, I, I was just meeting up with my long, you know, my long-term friend who I was just visiting their place in California and we'd go out to eat, we were going to the beach and, and it was just very laid back. But, um, but there's hundreds of thousands of people that look to this person for, for any kind of advice because they, that's how much influence that he has over them and um, a lot of that has stemmed from him showing love to these people instead of treating them like they were a follower um, I think that's kind of one of the biggest things that I learned that I directly apply to my athletes is you know a lot of these guys they this kind of stems back to me talking about how they don't really know the, they don't really want to invest into it until they know the value but one of the things that we do with some of the athletes is we respond back to people that DM us or we respond back to comments, right? Or we're maybe we're on Reddit and we're talking back to people where they never expect an athlete to be, but we are showing love to people that show them support. And then the next thing you know, we get these messages back and pictures back of them buying jerseys. And so it's, it's such a simple concept to kind of show love to people that are showing support, but everybody's always concerned about gaining new fans, new followers, um, new clients, new consumers, new customers that they kind of forget to show love and, and support the people that have already shown support. And, and um, you know, not that this is the goal, but that lifetime value for that existing customer is much better than trying to always acquire new fans, right? And so whatever fashion that looks like, it could, be, it could be a donor, it could be a jersey purchaser, it could be a season ticket holder. You know, there's all these concepts where if they just showed more support to the people that were already there, not only would they have a, a longer lifetime value, but those customers now become experts in word of mouth marketing for whatever campaign that is. Right. And so that's what uh, I really learned from Charlie is, is to create lifelong supporters that ended up being our best marketing team because of the word of mouth marketing they were able to provide for us for any kind of concept that we were rolling out. So that that's, I sorry to go off on a tangent, but there's so much, okay. you know, there's so much behind Charlie. It's hard to kind of encapsulate a couple of themes.
0: Mm-hmm. How does it differ working with, Charlie versus. Now I know Charlie is a Nike athlete. technically so definitely he's a pro athlete. But how does it differ working with Charlie versus the the pro athletes that you work with?
1: So you know, to be very transparent, working with somebody as smart as Charlie has has definitely has its ups and downs. One, he because he was a music kind of you know he was managing a lot of artists and he saw success. He knew exactly what it took to have that success. Whether you're working with a motivation, a motivational speaker, an athlete, a celebrity, somebody just like Charlie, or, or just another musician, um, he knew exactly what it took because of his path and what he did to drive success. And it's not always, it's not always glamorous. It's not always creative. Um, sometimes you kind of just have to get in the weeds and, and do a lot of work and do the work, I guess, that people aren't willing to do to find the success that other people aren't seeing. And that's one of the best things about Charlie is he was able to give me all the insights directly from him that he learned managing artists and, and, you know, artists that did really well too, right. They, millions and millions of hits or are, are um, of, uh, what's it called? Album sales. And, and, you know, he, he saw so much success. He won a Grammy, like all these things were, it, it was awesome to work directly with him because he could just tell me exactly the real part of the business that drove success with these people. And it wasn't just, oh yeah, we came up with this really good video. We put it out, it became viral and they became a, a hit artist, right? Like it, it took millions of messages on MySpace. It took, it took stuffing 50,000 CDs and passing them out at Walmart, right? Like these are the things that people don't like to talk about, but it's, it's, those are the factors behind that person's real success. And, and so we take those concepts and we apply it to the athletes we're working with. It's not just a really good video. It's not just you know a really cool witty message or a witty tweet. It's sometimes behind the scenes. It's a lot more work, and we're we're doing a lot of things with these athletes that um, that other people aren't doing, and we'll start to see it pay off soon. But I guess that's what I kind of learned from Charlie is you know he knew exactly what it took, so he was you know he was he was demanding with a lot of things because he knew that it took this amount of work, it took this amount of messages, it took this amount of of creative to be you know. Um, to be processed and developed for us to to start uh, making a, a real difference in generating that momentum. Whereas some of these athletes, you know, they're not so in tune with marketing, right? They understand it. They're getting better at it, but, but that's the difference between Charlie and, and working with somebody new is when I come to somebody new, I just ask them what the, what's the bottom line? Like, what are you trying to achieve? And then I figure out everything possible to, to help them achieve that goal. It could be a certain amount of money raised for charity. It could be, I'm generating a new startup and we're looking for this kind of, of revenue through the startup. Or it could be these are the companies I, like, I would like to work with and I'd like to, to use you to figure out how to get in front of their team to be able to sell the attention that I have to my athletic influence for new endorsements, right? So they kind of give me the bottom line and the, the, the goal and I, it's up to me to figure it out. When I was working with Charlie, we would come up with the goals together and then he would tell me exactly what would, what would need to happen to reverse engineer that goal. And that's what's a little bit different is, um, you know, there's a little bit more pressure. He's a little bit more demanding, but but fair enough, because he's been there and he knows exactly when, what it takes. Um, so that's, that's the big difference, I would say, is, you know, he just, he wants to see the results and he's willing to go to a very high level to, you know, whether it's messaging a million people in MySpace, whether it's packaging those CDs, whether, you know, whatever it took. If he had to travel all the way up and down the East Coast to talk to radio DJs, that's what he would do. And um, you know, he expected that same level of of commitment and expectation for his marketing. Um, so you know, it, it was tough at times, but I certainly learned a, a ton about the uh, getting in the weeds to make sure things get done.
0: Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. I'm curious from from the athlete perspective. What now? Are you say you kind of go to them and you ask them what their goal is? I'm curious from, from a sponsorship perspective, how you go about doing that? Because one thing I've noticed when it comes to influencer marketing is one of the big key factors in the success of a campaign is whether it's an authentic promotion, whether it makes sense for that person to be promoting it. So how do you go about finding sponsors for athletes that kind of makes sense?
1: Absolutely. So we have a process, but the, the first thing that I do is I go to the guy or the girl and I say, give me a list of 20 or 30 brands that either you use or that you would want to work with right that way i know that there's investment from their end i know that they're going to they're going to want to be invested into a little bit more than if i just went out and found the money um they're that's what they want truly is they you know they're not asking for a ton um a lot of these well I, that's very different from i would say the nhl and some of the uh these other sports but um but in the nhl you know these guys they they want to raise funds. They want to work with brands that they truly use in their their daily process. Things that they find value in. It could be something to help them train, something to help them stay, uh, you know, stay fit. It could be something that their family enjoy using. Um, those are the type of, of more authentic deals that that we're finding. Um, it's not just about trying to find the biggest ticket and the biggest check. Um, these guys, they they truly, I mean, these guys make money, right? So they, you know, of course, they want to generate more revenue if they can use a personal brand. Um but a lot of these guys they're they're more interested in having something long term um even if there's no sponsorships coming in they' they wanna, they want they want to work with people who can help them build a personal brand to to be able to be successful after the you know after their career. Um, that's the one big difference between NHL guys and, and maybe people in the nBA and NFL is you know they they're less likely to dedicate time towards the media stuff until after their career um, that's where we're kind of trying to shift the narrative right now is helping them understand that you know. Now is a great time. With some support, we can be able to make sure that you know you're you're fully dedicated, you're fully committed to the team, while also being able to leverage our athletic influence during the short period of time while they're a player, right? So that's one. That's a big narrative that we're looking to shift in, in the NHL is um, making the players more marketable. But like you said, it's uh, it's a little bit tricky trying to align deals that they want to work with more specifically versus us going out and saying, hey, this company wants to work with you. They want to pay this much. Do you want to do it? Do you want to do the commercial? You know, they're a little bit more personal about which uh which ones they want to work with. And and um but I will say that on the charity side, it just comes down to, you know, we're putting out good media. We're developing, you know, we we call it, here at Co Media, we call it fan favorite factory. That's what we put our athletes through is we want to develop fan favorites on every team that we have. Um because we want to be able to tap into those people for, for whatever marketing need is, is presented to us from the athlete. If it's, they want to, you know, they want to put on an event. We want to have fan favorites who want to, you know, dedicate a, maybe a, a charitable donation, or maybe they show up to the event. Maybe they, they offer their time and help. Um, that's the type of, of fan favorites that we're looking to to build with going Media. And, you know, some people, it could be a, a pro- nonprofit. Some people, they could develop their own line of apparel and, and uh, start generating revenue through their influence by selling merchandise. So there's like there's a ton of different things that these athletes are looking for. But what we try to do from the beginning is figure out one, I guess, what they're interested in doing after their career. You know, that way we can kind of start building up their personal brand, leading it up to that event, or just give me a list of twenty or thirty brands, and, and we'll come up with the creative and and um, and the campaigns to be able to present to these companies and get the introduction started to to uh, ultimately work with the companies they want to work with.
0: I 100% agree with you that athletes, especially while they're playing, is a time to build their brand because that can just help them post-playing career with their longevity as a personality versus sometimes once you retire, it's like you lose the attention you have as, a, as an active player. But I'm curious too, so when you're going and you're pitching these companies, one thing that allows, that allows you to kind of, whether either make more from the sponsorship or make a more compelling case as to why they should sponsor an athlete, of course, they're a professional athlete, but two... It's creating a more enjoyable feed from players. And one, like I have always had an issue, especially with hockey, with athlete person or athlete social medias. Like I worked in junior hockey for a while in the OHL, and junior hockey players post four times a year at the beginning of the season, Christmas, one playoff photo, and a picture at the cottage in the summer, and that's it. And even you look at a guy like Connor McDavid. And he, I think like you go through like half of his posts are sponsored posts. And that's just as a fan, that's not an enjoyable experience for me. So how do you go about, one, crafting an enjoyable feed for fans, but also how do you balance not overdoing it with the sponsors in a, in a feed?
1: Absolutely. So there's kind of two things there. One, to kind of tackle your response on, on the junior hockey players. I mean, the NHL is exactly the same way. They post one time in December, one time in November, and then that's really up for the season. Um, some of these new players that are coming in they haven't posted, you know, they've been in the league for two years and they haven't posted a picture since college and It's like, it, it blows my mind, but at the same time, it, it kind of goes back to, they just, if they don't know, they're not, they're not knowledgeable about it, then, then they're not going to invest into it. Right. So, um, one of the things that we want to do is, is be active. So that tackles that issue. Right. So not only does being active give us the opportunity to, I guess, lessen the blow when we do have something sponsored, um, but to be honest, I look at it as pathways, right? So the more posts we have out there, the more the more pathways somebody can come back to our profile or or the athlete's profile and want to follow more, right? So that's that's number one thing that we always do for athletes. If you're not active, we have to be active. Um, that's where we 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 learn their personal uh, their persona. We learn what they are interested in, so that when we create content, everything is approved by them, right? Everything from a visual to the message to the caption. Everything needs to be comfortable um, between both of us before we push it out there. So being active is one thing, um, but to tackle the sponsored posts, one thing that we love to do at media specifically is create ads that are well-performing content. So we don't really look at it as we want to create an ad. We, we, we like to push out a hundred pieces of content, see what's performing well, and then turn that into an ad. Um, So that's kind of our process so that we know, not only do we know that people are going to enjoy this type of content that's going out there, but we know it's going to do well and we know that it's going to bring a lot more attention to whoever we partner with, right? So um, I don't know if you follow Gabriel Cog but hes I use him all the time because the content or the the sponsored content that he pushes out with um, various, I think Stella Artois was one of the recent ones he did and it was, a, it was an unbelievable graphic where he was pouring a beer, but the you know, the way that the video was edited, it showed that the beater was never ending. Like it, it just continuously poured, but it was a still photo. And um, it's just one of those things where you're just like, man, this is just such a great piece of content. It doesn't even feel like an ad. It just feels like Gabe putting out something that was uh, that was interesting and, and that was entertaining. And um, so we, we try to take that same approach with some of our content is or some of our ads. It's, it's really just something that people could watch or view or look at and not think it's an ad. I think that's kind of the the frequency we're trying to hit with some of our advertising, um, just so like what you said, it's not just a a player on the feed holding up something with a caption that's clearly been written by that company. Um, that you know we want to kind of steer away from that kind of stuff. Um, but if we can create awesome creative that that people don't even view as an ad, that's what we're trying to do with with some of our posts. But that plus being very active on media, where you know, I think you're absolutely right. There's people like Connor McDavid, Mitch Marner is another good example of like half his posts are, are sponsored posts, but he's doing a great job and the guy's getting paid. So like you kind of have to applaud it a little bit because, you know, he's doing pretty well. And um, somebody like Mitch Marner, not a lot of people give him flack for, for his sponsored posts, but, but I agree with you as a fan, you know, you don't want to see half the, the feed or half the amount of media coming from the athlete be a, be an ad. But I think there's, there's ways where people can be creative with it and, especially if you're well-versed in video and, and, um, you know, to be able to promote something with it being more secondary. So being able to tell a story and have that being presented by a company, I think that's kind of where we lean versus telling you all the product dimensions and the descriptions. Uh, we'd rather figure out how to tell a story with the product, um, being placed in there through a, through a partnership or a secondary placement versus, you know what I mean? Like that, that's kind of where we lean towards. Um, I, you know, like I said, some if somebody like McDavid doesn't really care about media and he just prefers to, to you know, take that partnership check and call it a day, then, you know, I don't think uh, somebody like him. It's always interesting because he could turn on a switch, right? And, and he can either pick it up himself or hire somebody and start crushing it with media, and, and people won't even look back and, and realize that you know they they won't care because he has that much athletic like influence. But somebody else, you know, who who might be like a a borderline professional athlete who's having a tough time staying on teams and things like that. And and then trying to monetize in any way, like I agree that some of those feeds can get pretty ugly and, and uh, people take a lot of flack for that kind of stuff. But I mean, at the end of the day, I like to think that it's, it's additional business, right? So when people are doing business, you, you, you want to be, I guess, personal about it and not critique it too much, but, um, but I, that's just how we view it. We try to make it good content. And when we realize that it's good content through whether, you know, some kind of engagement rate or some kind of level of engagement, then we'll push that to figure out how to turn that into an ad versus you know, vice versa.
0: Here, you're going to talk about the different content that you've seen, especially from a guy like Gabriel Lanzeskog. I just looked, I looked at that as you were talking about it. So it was an interesting photo slash video. But is there any content you're seeing that's catching your eye coming out of the bubble?
1: Coming out of the bubble, I you know, today I actually listened to a podcast from Spin Chicklets with uh, Kevin Hayes in the bubble. And um, to be honest, uh, you know, I don't know that, that anybody is doing it well. I think uh, there's a lot of NBA guys that, that were able to crush it on YouTube um, by by essentially just vlogging, right? And I found myself watching multiple videos, 10, 20 minutes long of these NBA. I, I don't follow the NBA closely, like I do you know enough as a sports fan, but. But um, you know, I, I heard, I saw on media that two guys were doing a, a bubble vlog, and I, I tuned in one night, and I, I watched like three or four episodes in a row, and I was astonished because these guys, they didn't have huge Instagram followings, but you go over to YouTube and they would have, you know, hundred and fifty thousand subscribers because they're offering content and they were smart about it to be able to be one of the first, you know, one of two guys to to kind of vlog from the bubble. But um, I think there was a goalie on on Toronto who who did it, but. I don't think anybody's doing it well, to be honest. I I didn't really see much. I'm just more happy to watch actual hockey um, and and view the games each day. But uh, but yeah, I think there's there's a lot of people that probably do a little bit better.
0: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I I was curious because I haven't seen a ton coming out of the NHL bubble. To your point there, I've seen quite a bit coming out of the NBA bubble. There's been some good content. I even recently stumbled onto a vlog by, I think it was an Indianapolis Colts draft pick who played for USC. And through his time at college, him and his girlfriend vlog basically the entire time. So there's all these videos of him playing games in college. So it's like when he's doing like, athlete stuff his girlfriend can kind of fill those gaps with with the vlog content and like so they've the whole process of him going into the nfl draft and getting drafted in the combine and everything and now he's a professional athlete and they're still vlogging so it's interesting to see kind of this generation of athletes who are raised on youtube and watching people like casey neistat become pro athletes but still have that desire to be a content creator and start to putting out their own content i think the nhl is lagging behind in that a little bit so hopefully in the in the coming years we start to see more guys kind of embrace content
1: absolutely there's a there's one guy i want you to look at because he he i think he was a san jose rookie this year his name is mario ferraro he has a youtube channel and he he posts actually pretty frequently i want to say at least once a week maybe sometimes twice a week he um i spoke to him on instagram for a little bit he does all the editing himself and you know it's very impressive and you know i I think uh as he starts to build himself a name in the NHL, he's going to be one of those guys to kind of look out for to be kind of I don't want to say the next like PK Subban in terms of media but like this guy is he has a passion for you know for videography and creating and and uh for media. I think he has a TikTok too. So he's one of the guys to watch out for. I think if he was in the bubble he would be producing some some awesome content.
0: 100% I'm just looking at him now. He seems like a really interesting dude.
1: <laughs> he's he's uh he's interesting is a good way to put it. He's he's very funny though. Like if you watch on his content like I like. I gotta say, like, hockey players are interesting to me just because of my fascination with hockey. But like, in terms of personality, it's not always there. But you know, there's every now and then, there's always like the the legends, like the Paul that Like, I'd love to spend Chiklis and all those guys. And there's a new podcast, uh, Missing Curfew with Scotty Upshaw. And those, like, there's there's a couple good personalities. But you know, when I'm watching some of his stuff, he like. I think a lot of people don't put stuff out there because they care about like what their teammates think and what the organization thinks. Uh, <laughs> once you see this guy's TikTok, you can realize that he's. He doesn't really care. He's, he's just truly himself. And uh, he's pretty funny. So I, I would definitely check him out.
0: Yeah, 100%. I even reach out to him for this podcast. See if he's down to come chat about his content. Absolutely.
1: I think he would be. I think he would be for sure.
0: I, I'm getting close to wrapping up here. This is, but one Instagram post I wanted to ask you about that you shared, I can't remember when it was, but it was um, it was around Jay-Z being the first hip-hop billionaire. And the I believe the caption was, the power of building brands instead of promoting them or something to that effect. Is that kind of your long-term vision with Cohen Media is to essentially co-found businesses with these athletes, use their social channels to promote them and gain exposure to the brand. And then they don't have to worry about growing a business. You kind of take on the growing the business and managing it day to day while they're playing. But you also co-found it because you're doing all the work and essentially using their recognition and brand to grow the business. That kind of like a long-term vision for Cohen Media for you?
1: yeah that's awesome how <laughs> how you picked up on on something like that i guess, that's not even something i tell people i guess that's more of just a personal insight of mine of you know like helping these players understand that you know because of media they can start something today um and and build something of value for the next couple of years until they retire right it, it could be it could be an apparel line it could you know t j oshi is a good example he created something called war road it's his uh it's from you know it's called the brand is, is, uh, his hometown, but it's, it's awesome apparel, right? Like, and that's something that he's continually promoting. There's other athletes promoting, you know, athletes from Minnesota. Um, he's a great example because, you know, instead of partnering with somebody and getting one paycheck, you can literally build the business to have this, this, um, this brand that you can dive into right after you're done with your playing career. It doesn't have to just be apparel. It could be anything, right? Like anything that they, they find value in something that it could be a hobby. it could be an investment um one of my guys that i'm working with was a was a former nhl goalie who who got into a, a partnership deal with a esports company because you know gaming was just one of his passions and and now you know he he has um he's affiliated with this with his esports company and that's some of the content we, we help him with but uh but absolutely you're absolutely right i, I want to be able to help these guys build something of value that's not just lining up endorsement and sponsorship deals but if they have a true passion to build something else and you know, for some guys, it might even be a media company, and like maybe we can partner with them on that and help other athletes and other NHLers develop their media. Um, that's what I want to be able to do, and uh, I, I fully agree with the the Jay Z process of instead of getting paid by Patron, I'm going to start my own company and start promoting it. Um, I think that is such a great way for athletes to use their athletic influence to build something other than just uh, endorsement deals. So that's that's definitely something I want to be able to help a lot of guys with, and um, I want to say that my experience in, in digital marketing. And also media will, you know, make a good partner for, for a new brand or whatever that looks like, a technology brand, a consumer goods brand, whatever it might be, or just a podcast maybe, right? Just something that they can build and, and use their own personal influence to help uh, help kind of craft the audience there.
0: Mm. A lot of people listening to this might be just, might want to do something similar. They want to work with these athletes, but they you're working, like you're, you're so far ahead at this point. And the, where I'm heading with this is, the a quote that I know you're a fan of that I want to ask you about why you like this quote. And it's, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Can you kind of elaborate on that quote and why you like it?
1: Absolutely. I'm a big fan of, if you want to learn something, the best way is to just kind of jump in the fire. Um, I think a lot of people spend time preparing for things. They spend time, you know, measuring three, four or five times, or they feel like if they want to get a digital marketing client, they have to go to school to, you know, like get a whole degree and on figuring it out, you know, how to take care of this client. And, uh, my, that, that boat stands out to me because I spent a lot of my time before marketing in, um, in, in training and helping, you know, a seven year old or a 70 year old get into ice hockey or start skating, uh, power skating, ice hockey. And, and, um, I always found that the people who excelled the most were the people who just dove into it and just started getting on the ice right away and getting on the ice with me as much as possible. Um, I had this, this guy who's a doctor probably over 60 years old he he told me that he got this officiating book he, so he was watching hockey he he was doing all these things to prepare himself to learn how to play the game you know cuz he never play, he never played uh growing up he never he never ice skated before he just he, something fascinated about you know if, you know i think a lot of people get drawn into hockey and then they become obsessed with it but you know he wanted to play so bad but he was just scared to do it and um next thing you know you know just told him it's like hey you just have to. if you want to be a better skater you just have to be on the ice you don't have to be you know you don't have to go backwards you don't have to do any jumps just go on the ice a couple times a week after three weeks you're going to be comfortable and we'll start doing lessons and um that's exactly what he did and you know in the course of a couple months he, he joined a league and i think it was just because he he pushed himself to get out there and just kind of jump into it and uh just knowing you're not gonna be good at it at first, but um having the vision that if you continue on and you practice every day that uh it'll get better. And one of the I guess uh I, I kind of love that quote because I think a lot of people get stuck. And um I think the best thing that you can do is just jump into it and learn. And if you're just having having the mindset to know that you're gonna learn and, and come out better versus kind of worrying what people are thinking about you and, and things like that, I think just knowing that having the vision that after a year you're gonna be a little bit closer than you were. Before that's that's kind of what pushed me to get into starting my own company. Like at first, it's it's pretty scary, right? Like you you might have clientele going into it, but is it sustainable? Did you leave a good job to to pursue something and fail at it? But um, but I told myself, you know, the way that I'm able to help my clients today is going to be drastically different in a year because I'm going to constantly test new things. I'm gonna I'm gonna fail a little bit, but those failures are going to help me learn to. Either you know better, pursue more marketing campaigns, better campaigns with the future guys, or the people I'm working with now. And so that's kind of how I view it. Is you know I always had a, a, I had a hockey coach growing up uh, when I first played AAA, and I don't know why this stuck with me, but uh, it's kind of similar to that story you had earlier about you know making sure that you weren't sucking. But every time we had this head coach tell us this incredible speech right before we hop on the ice, and then this assistant coach who's he's in the Canadian military would come in and and just say, "Don't suck." And that was like, that was the one thing I focused on for the whole game. It's just like, if I don't get scored. Cause I was a defenseman mostly. I, was like, if I don't get scored on and I don't suck. Then I'll be successful. And it was so simple, but <laughs> it stuck with me to this day. It's just like, you know, don't suck. But at the same time, you know, jumping into it and understanding that if you suck today, you know, it, it's not going to be you sucking in a year from now, like you, you will get better. You will progress. Um, and that's kind of one of the quotes that I kind of, tell people when they first get started is like sometimes you have to be shitty before you get better and so that's that's just how it is and but if you have the vision and you stick with it you know that uh that daily progression adds up versus you know people just kind of giving up after a couple
0: goes absolutely man and that's the advice i often give people whenever i'm on whenever i ever i'm on someone else's podcast and they ask me for that, like one piece of advice my always my thing is always just start because you'll be better off starting than just pondering whether you started or not absolutely but before we wrap up here, there's a bit of a marathon podcast, man. I appreciate you sticking it out with me this <laughs> long.
1: Sure. I, ask,
0: I ask everyone the same standard set of questions at the end of every interview. I used to call it rapid fire, but they're not really the most rapid fire type questions. So I started calling it Q&A, uh, but then I realized this is a podcast. And the entire thing is a Q&A, so that doesn't make sense. Um, so I don't really have a name for this, but the first question is, you're going to dinner, you take three people, it could be anybody dead or alive. Who do you take to dinner?
1: Oh man, all right. I'd probably take, so first of all, Austin Matthews, he's a guy that I'd like to work with sometime in, in the near future. So I think having a dinner with him and sitting down to hear some of the goals that he has for his life would be awesome for me to to understand and, and to potentially work with. Uh, so I would say Austin Matthews. Um, Michael Jordan is a guy who I uh, grew up, you know, idolizing and, and just everything that he does has always been next level for me. So I think Michael Jordan is somebody just to, Just to be around and see how he reacts and just see how he interacts with people is interesting to me. And then um let's see. I'll go back in time with this because here's a quick fact. I'm actually a history major coming out of college, so maybe I'll go with I'll go with a George Washington just just to understand his brain and how things worked back then versus just what the history books tell us.
0: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. What are some of the best advice you've ever been given?
1: best advice I've ever been given a good one Hmm. gotta say I was given this piece of advice coming out of school trying to find a job um somebody told me this and they said you know to not get caught up in where you're going and just enjoy the journey along the way and and that's something that uh I've I've really kind of held true to a lot of the stuff um you know, I'm somebody who has high ambitions, and high, you know, I I come up with a lot of goals for myself, long term and short term. But um, I try not to get caught up on the long term, just knowing that you know everything. First of all, everything that's happened in my life so far, I'm pretty grateful for, and and I uh, I feel that I uh, not that I'm light years ahead of anybody else, but I feel like I'm light years ahead of where I thought I would be. So, it kind of enjoying the way on the way to the top, whatever the top looks like for anybody else, is kind of just making sure that you you take a moment to to appreciate everything that's happened to you so far and everything that's going on in your life to, you know, just be present and, and enjoy it as long as you're you know, on the way, not just when you finally get there.
0: So sticking with the theme of advice, a lot of people often ask, like, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, what would you, what would that be? But I want to flip that on its head. And if, if Drew from the future for 15 years in the future, came back now today, what would he tell you right now?
1: Drew from the future told me something. Like, they just told me like something that happened, or what do you mean? Oh, so if he came
0: back and like gave you advice, like what do you oh. think, Drew from the future? What kind of advice would he give you today?
1: He'd probably tell you to stop eating so late and get some more sleep. <laughs> I think uh, one of the things I really want to focus on for, for you know, coming out of quarantine and going into next year is uh, kind of prioritize my health a little bit. So I think um, Drew from the future will tell me how more effective and and uh, hopefully productive I am with a healthier lifestyle.
0: I love it. What is one thing about you people wouldn't expect?
1: A uh, hmm. thing that people would not expect? Um, to be honest, this is one that's just, I guess, a little bit about my heritage that people, it's kind of like a crazy, so my dad's Jewish and my mom's Christian, but my mom's also Korean. So I kind of have this weird combination of being Jewish-Korean. Um, that's something that not a lot of people know about me.
0: Hmm. What is one thing that's so important everyone needs to know?
1: You need to protect your data.
0: Okay. Final question. I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have this crystal ball. You can ask this crystal ball any question. You'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you want to know the answer to? Wow.
1: One question the answer to would probably be... All right, this might be a little bit of a cop-out, but like something that always... like just to say, what is the meaning of life? And not that I would know the answer, but I just want to know what the answer would be, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it could be so simple, but it also could be so complex. But I feel like that's a question I would ask just to see the response, not so much like be enlightened by the response.
0: Mm -hmm. That's fair, man. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. Like I said, a marathon, we're pushing an hour and 45 minutes here. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Plug anything and everything you got right now.
1: Awesome. No, I mean, I, I share a lot of my content that we create for our athletes and our, our, um, our clients on Cohenmedia.io. Uh, and we also we're on Instagram, um, Media. Um, but that's really it. You know, we, we share a lot of content there, but to be honest, a lot of our time and effort is spent on our clients. So, so we don't do a ton, but I, I've been trying to make it a point to share more on our, our personal stuff to make sure that people see what we can do. But, um, but man, Jacob, I gotta say, this is, this is awesome. Um, I was speaking to my buddy Lee, who was on the show previously and, you know, he was singing his praises on, on just you as a host and the whole, po- you know, just, just the whole show in general, just the notes, the summaries, the. The amount of research that you put in um it's it's definitely it, you show your dedication um to the game but also uh i've been in podcasting for a bit you know working and producing podcasts and i will say that a lot of people come into it not prepared and, and it definitely makes them look bad but i will say that this is a, a highly well-produced show and and uh, i
0: really look forward to what you're able to do in next couple of years that means a lot man thank you i do put i put a lot of work especially into the prep work that's probably where the most amount tell. of my time it's goes and awesome. So I'm glad that that shows when I, when we do these interviews. I really appreciate that, man. It's,
1: it's very very apparent. So I so I have
0: to applaud you on that. Thank you very much, man. I want to thank you once again for taking the time to be on this podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you've listened the entire way through, you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking the time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Drew on Instagram. Go and check out Cohen Media. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. If you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and at my social life podcast or YouTube by searching up my social life. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.